Hello everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. We are so thrilled to be bringing you the first in a series of podcasts that are supported by IDEX. We're going to be talking about all things antibiotic resistance and the importance of our antibiotic stewardship, not just in veterinary medicine, but in human medicine as well. Just to introduce myself, my name is Scott, I'm one of the founders of VTX and I am a specialist in small animal internal medicine. Uh, and as always, I am joined by my pal Karen, who I'm sure it will be thrilled to learn about all things antibiotic um, resistant as well, aren't you Karen? Absolutely cannot wait. Absolutely cannot wait. Yeah, so good. a stewardship sounds very uh, responsible. Uh... <laughs> it does. I'm quite excited about Do that. Do you like that? It just, Do I get one of those? It's, well, it's not an award. It's just, no, that's just a, <laughs> it means responsible use, but I just, it does sound quite good, doesn't it? Okay. Anyway, on that note, let's, um, <laughs> let's get right into it. Right, well, listen, we're so excited to have two guests in the podcast today, and uh, I have to uh, pay a special tribute to um, one of our guests, who is the first... <laughs> non-veterinary uh guest on the podcast so uh someone who is not uh, a vet or a vet nurse karen which is exciting oh, yes. so now um yeah so um and it's good for us vets and vet nurses and all that veterinary professionals to get uh, a, dif- a different perspective on things for sure so um that uh moves on to introducing dorisan so uh, dorisan i don't know if you would be okay just to um kind of introduce yourself to the audience and tell us a little bit about your background and career. Yes, of course, Scott. Um, hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Doris Ann. I've <laughs> always worked in medical diagnostics, so working on human health, although at some times in my career, the tests I've been working on have also been used on animals. Um, I, I'm a clinical biochemist by training, so that's part of um, the NHS pathology service, so one of the specialties that hospitals provide to look after their inpatients, outpatients, and the primary care community. But from very early stage, I went straight into industry rather than working in the NHS, which I'm sort of regretting now with the NHS pension looking much more attractive than my own does. Initially, I worked in R&D, developing um, testing kits, um, and my specialty was thyroid medicine. So obviously it's a pertinent, different different uh, normal ranges for cats and dogs, but otherwise pretty much the same tests. Um, in the early days, it was very auto, um, very manual. And they moved on to automation from the late 80s onwards. And for the last 20 years, I've been working running the industry association for the medical diagnostic companies which include um, companies like Siemens, um, Abbott and um, Roche, some of which will also have veterinary products as well as, as well, of course, IDEX, which is a veterinary specialist. My interest over that time has been varied. Um, At the moment, I'm very interested in the genomic medicine agenda, um, but particularly I've been interested for a long while on what we call point of care or near patient testing, which is something that most of you do in your practices routinely, and which I'm extremely envious of because I think a lot could be settled in primary care without people going into hospital. And more latterly, over the last seven, eight years, of course, uh, antimicrobial resistance, which I think is what we're going to be focusing on today, has has been a 
a really strong interest and I've worked very closely with Dame Sally Davis, the former uh, Chief Medical Officer for NHS England and now a global lead for, for antimicrobial resistance. So that's something that I have been and am spending a lot of time on. I love that, you know, just that point of care point, you know, that's really interesting because we in veterinary medicine uh, and Marta will agree that, that you know, uh, we're so reliant actually on point of care um, testing uh, and, and, and actually we would really struggle, although, you know, external laboratories are very, very important, but there's, there's a real, we, we need both. I didn't want to under represent IDEX there, but there was, there's a real kind of, you know, but, but, but genuinely we need both in order to be able to do our job because actually, you know, a lot of our, our medicine is very quick, you know, and it has to be, um, particularly, gosh, over the last year, we need that ability to be able to do things, you know, here and now. So that's a, that's a really interesting point. Just, I wanted to just bring up one thing. I don't, I don't want to embarrass you in any way. So, um, uh, you were awarded an, an MBE. Um, I, you, I don't, I, I just think that's very cool. I don't know if you could quickly tell people what, what you were awarded that for. Well, the citation was um, for services to healthcare industry. Wow. Congratulations for that. And all the other stuff that you've described, it sounds, um, you know, and, and sounds like you've covered a huge amount of really interesting ground there. So, yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, so, Marta, just to um, just to ask you again the same question, just about your um, your background. And, and I know we'll talk a bit about the, the work you do uh, currently, um, but just to tell us a little bit about, um, yeah, where, how you have got to where you've got to today. Uh, but first, I uh, thank you for the invitation. And, and also, I uh, feel very humbled to be here as the a veterinary representative <laughs> when I, you know, um, have my counterpart as being Doris-Anne. So um, thank you. And uh, yeah, let's see if I can... <laughs> Step up to the challenge. Of course, of course. Um, I also have a very varied background, um, as well as as Doris Anne, which I think actually um, contributes to the input that we can give. Because um, I started off, I took my degree of veterinary medicine in Portugal, um, and did um, straight after finishing my degree, did split practice. So half of my day was spent in uh, a small animal for screening practice, and then the other half was spent on a diagnostic lab. So I was very early on into the diagnostic side of things, but did spend some time in practice, six years, which is, you know, some time <laughs> doing that split role. Uh, while I was doing the diagnostic lab work, I took first a post-graduation and then a master's in medical microbiology infectious diseases, at the time, this was done with humans, with medics. So I was uh, one of three vets on a cohort of 20 medics. <laughs> um, and it was very much, uh, then you could specialize within that master's. And I chose antimicrobial resistance and uh, rapid molecular methods for diagnosis um, for infectious diseases in general. Uh, so you're talking, you know, real-time PCR before it was so wildly available and uh, fish uh, and things like that before, again, they, they were so widely available. I then um, started a lectureship in Portugal uh, in uh, clinical pathology and also a bit of the diagnostics of infectious diseases and um, moved to the UK in 2009 to do my residency training. At the time, there wasn't a European College of Veterinary Microbiology. There was one for clinical pathology. And so I uh, did my residency in clinical pathologist. I've never lost my link with microbiology. So 
I am a clinical pathologist by training with um, old roots in microbiology, which allows me, I guess, to put it all together uh, because, you know, you look at the cytology, you look at the microbiology, you look at the markers for infectious diseases, and you look at it as, as a diagnostician almost rather than just a microbiologist. Mm-hmm. Where did you do Where did you do your residency? I did my residency at Bristol. Okay. Very cool. Okay. And then I stayed Very there cool. uh, until last year. So I stayed there first as a clinical pathologist, uh, then as a lecturer in clinical pathology um, until um, yeah, last year, November, when I moved to IDEX, where I'm currently a clinical pathologist and uh, the deputy head for microbiology. Cool. And a lot of my research that I've done has been on diagnostics of uh, infectious disease and antimicrobial resistance. And that includes actually POC testing as well. So validation of point of care testing as well. Because I agree, and I think not just IDEX, but a lot of the veterinary big diagnostic labs recognize the importance of POC testing in terms of the animal care industry, not just in small animals, but also in equine uh, uh, medicine. And so um, I think that is something that all clinical pathologists have an interest in as well, because we recognize how important it is for our clinical practice. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, great. Thanks very much. So just moving on to kind of um, one of the big themes that we do want to kind of try and pick apart a bit today. And we've, you know, God, it's such when I when I'm about to say this topic, you think, God, we will be here for days. We can't be here for days, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) So There are limits. Um, So one of the one of the biggest things that we're told, you know, we, we wanted to cover is obviously um, antimicrobial resistance. So I think, Doris Ann, it's clear from the media, you don't have to be a, a medic or a microbiologist or a, you know, you can be just a normal human being walking down the street. And I think there's an awareness generally of antimicrobial resistance being a problem. I think let's just start with that then. So just talk us through the kind of fundamentals of why antimicrobial resistance is currently such a problem in not just the human but obviously uh, moving into the the veterinary field as well well like i guess it's it's become it's it's a, a problem that's been coming on for a long while in fact even alexander fleming actually noted that um organisms were becoming resistance resistant to penicillin in as he was as he as he was working on it so it's something we should have been aware of from the very onset and perhaps been more cautious in how we used antibiotics. Um, but of course, after the Second World War, it sort of completely took off and was seen as a wonder cure for all the infections that have been killing people and animals. And we've abused it as a, as a global society, putting antibiotics in paint and in all sorts of places where we probably have no, uh, no reason to do so. So it's, it's great that over the last 10 years, it's been recognised as a problem. And I'm glad that the public are seeming to become aware of it. Um, but I don't know that with the pandemic having hit that we won't have some sort of uh, population weariness about, oh, my God, we've just got over this disaster and you're telling us there's an even bigger one we have to worry about. But actually, I've made sure that the health ministers, um, not just me, but colleagues as well, are, are fully aware that um, antimicrobial resistance is going to be a much bigger problem than the pandemic. It will make the pandemic look like a hiccup if we don't do something about it. 
So that message has hit home. And in human health, we're running out of effective antibiotics to use to treat infection. So we could get to a phase where there's been some quite dramatic um, radio plays and Sally Davis wrote a, a book, of, a small booklet about antimicrobial resistance where the first chat, chapter was a sort of science fiction scenario of someone getting a mild infection and being sealed off in a room in her home with food being posted through, but knowing she was going to die. And it was because there was just nothing, no way of treating her. So it is, it could be, it could be terrible. And one of my big fears is that we haven't got to just find more antibiotics to use and we shouldn't forget antifungals as well. But we really need to change the way we use drugs and change the way we treat patients and change the public um, view that it's not a successful visit to the doctor if you don't come away with a pack of, an of antibiotics just in case you need them. I, I know they're trying delayed prescriptions and things, but people still want to take something. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that people come to you as, as veterinarians and all want something to give their animals as well. Ad advice isn't always enough. In Germany, they're trialing a prescription uh, advice prescription to patients so they do have something to physically come away with even if it's just a piece of paper mm. I think it's a really interesting point and I'm sure I think we you know 100% we've talked about this before the physical giving of something is 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 so important to owners like you know and we we joke we were talking before we started recording about some of the black humor we'll not go into that too much but we joke about you know I wish there was just a like a um, a gelatin capsule filled with water I would use a lot of those if I had them you know so and obviously you, that's deceptive that's deceptive but it's true Karen that's deceptive because you can't be like but if I had because I guarantee that the majority of patients would improve um with the water <laughs> because things just get better anyway and things just get better anyway and, and we always as veterinary professionals want to feel like we're doing something positive for the patient but actually very many of the conditions that we're treating would actually just resolve <laughs> without any intervention <laughs> and that's and and actually that's one of the really you know interesting things about kind of antibiotic i don't want to deal you know go off piece too much but antibiotic use for instance a really good one from a, a veterinary point of view is, is just uncomplicated diarrhea so very routinely uh, patients will be given antibiotics um, for uncomplicated diarrhea so diarrhea that really would just get better with a, a day of time you know and that's definitely a sort of break point you know for us you've you've said so many things there I think so that's really quite hard-hitting in a very good way to, to sort of talk about this pandemic being just a drop in the ocean compared to the, the effect of antimicrobial resistance just to, just to quickly follow on from that uh, Doris and do you do you think that do you genuinely think things are changing well enough to actually stop us heading in that sort of direction? I, I am I'm really I am very concerned about it, partly that it's a global problem. And how do you reach out to the developing world um, where they have a very different culture um, and a very different understanding mm. and ability to, to do things differently? Um, at the moment, in, 
in medical terms in the UK, uh, the NHS is very um, outcome driven from a resource point of view. So actually, a lot of the meetings I do when I'm talking to um, NHS and government, we're talking about the cost of the NHS and the patient benefit and how patients benefit from things is important, but it's it's not something you highlight because they're not really going to be listening to that as much. Um, and the NHS has got finite reserves, um, but di diagnostics are seen as being more expensive than antibiotics, which are one of the few drugs that are really, really cheap. So they they don't value diagnostics in the same way and they don't want to spend more money on diagnostics um, but they do want to put more money into developing more antibiotics and I think that's my fear at the moment the drug companies are needing incentives to look at antibiotics because the big drug, drug companies can make much more money out of any oncology drugs or, or now looking at treatments for covid um, looking at new antibiotics is not something that's been high on their agenda. So they're, they're looking at financial incentives to get them to look at it. Um, I did say maybe you put a really high um, penalty on uh, primary care doctors prescribing antibiotics. So they have to think twice before they do it, because at the moment it's not a big, a big thing on their budget. But if it became a a bigger ticket on the budget. You know, Doris Ann has given us the, this this amazing kind of um, uh, actually quite impactful overview of, of, of that antimicrobial resistance issue within human health. From a veterinary point of view, what, what's your perspective from a veterinary point of view? I think probably from a couple of points, do you feel like we're taking it that seriously? And I suppose the other part of it is what, what role do we play in this bigger picture of antimicrobial resistance? Well, I think one of the things that's really important that we recognize is that the pathogens are the same and the microbes are shared. So there's a, a, a numerous studies that have shown that if your dog carries MRSA, then probably the owner will carry MRSA. Um, so it, it, it's um, the microbes are shared. And so if they're sharing uh, antimicrobial resistance, and that's particularly a problem, for example, when we think about transmissible things like plasmids, which confer um, antimicrobial resistance and can be shared from your normal flora to your more pathogenic flora. And so things like using antimicrobials, even from an, an early age on a puppy, that might solve that puppy's problem, but then by, might also transmit or predispose for that puppy to carry that antimicrobial resistance, even when it's healthy in its normal flora, but then that can be passed to pathogens and then it can be passed to the human counterpart. So there is very much a link between the use of antimicrobials and the presence of antimicrobials resistances within veterinary medicine and within human medicine, because we're sharing the antimicrobials, we're sharing the bugs. And so what we do can have an impact. Now, when we think about antimicrobial use in veterinary medicine, the majority of it is still within the farming industry. Okay, so it's still food production. That's where the bulk of antimicrobial use is. And that is where um, probably a, a lot of the um, uh, measures that have been taken by governments to limit the use of antimicrobials in veterinary medicine have been targeted at. But we know that this happened with our with our small animal population as well. 
So, you know, they, they have an importance and potentially can pass on uh, antimicrobial resistant organisms to their owners. And there is a very close contact between, you know, people sleep with their pets, you know, um, they share the sofas, uh, you know, they let their pets kiss them, you know. So, you know, all of that can, you know, facilitate that close contact and interaction. I thought it was very interesting as well to talk about all of the behaviors that we have as humans uh, that impact on the antimicrobial prescription. And I think it's very much shared between the challenges that Dorian was talking about in terms of the human GPs and what we see in veterinary practice. First, there is that pressure from the owner for th that prescription. And again, uh, we've talked about uh, how it, we can take uh, give something to the owner that is not an antimicrobial and that, how that facilitates. And we do have very good initiatives in veterinary medicine to, to kind of help with that, with the non-prescription pad from BSAVA that, that you, can, you can use to say it's just a diarrhea, it's self-limiting. At this point in time, I'm not going to prescribe an antimicrobial because of this, this and that. But there's also the commercial side of things and how potentially it's cheaper to treat than it is to test. Because if you test and you find something, then you still have to treat on top of it. So it's, um, it's a challenge for the vet to say, I'm going to test first and then wait so I can do the right prescription. Uh, because, you know, you want to start empirically treat that patient straight away, specifically when, um, you know, microbiology tests do take some time to come around, we can't cheer the bacteria for them to grow any faster. And therefore, you know, there's always a time delay between us getting the sample, culturing them and being able to provide the results um, back to, to, the, to the practitioner and then back to the client. Um, so I think there's a, a, a biggest challenge for dealing with this comes from human behavior change. And that's not just the owners, but it's also us as vets and vet nurses and everyone that is involved in um, dealing with antimicrobials. I, I thought it was interesting um, talking about the punitive charge that, for example, um, in humans, if you made people pay for the antimicrobials, maybe they wouldn't press so much for it, but we, you know, that already happens on the veterinary. They're already paying for that antimicrobial. So I think um, a lot that it can be done is just remove obstacles. Um, for changing that behavior to make it easier to not have that prescription or potentially to make it easier to prescribe lower down within the cascade, which I think is important as well. And then the other thing that I'm really, really interested about something that Doris Ann mentioned is the, the, and you said as well, is the impact of COVID um, on antimicrobials and how much of that has also changed the way we practice and how much of an impact it will have on antimicrobial uh, resistance. And that's already been shown on the human side that it has had an impact. And I suspect that the, because of the way it's changed the way we're doing clinical practice, that it will also have an impact on what we're prescribing and how we're prescribing in veterinary medicine. And I think it's one of those things that once these changes happen, it, it would potentially come back. Um, it's very difficult to reverse back uh, from from that change yeah I think so many interesting points there and I think um 
uh, sorry, I just have to pick up on one thing. So I I now have this image of you in the lab at IDEX, like literally doing some sort of cheerleading dance to get bacteria <laughs> to grow faster. So that's good. So I'm yeah. glad that that's a thing that you do. Um, so uh, what I love there is there's there's a real similarity in exact. You've said very very similar things there. So I think Dorisan, you talked about this initiative in Germany where you're getting you're getting a prescription but it's just a bit of paper and actually uh, and we'll we'll put a link in the show notes uh, to the BSAVA um prescription pad that you you spoke about and that that's something actually I didn't know about not that I know about everything but I, I didn't even know that existed and that sounds like a really interesting initiative so we definitely um you know t- to link to that but again um you know uh coming back to this uh this attitude about wanting to give um some medication I think one of the things that we are just to, to add something there, one of the things that we're challenged with in veterinary medicine always, uh, you know, is that uh, we often are lacking some of the evidence that maybe the med, the human medics have, you know, we're, we're sometimes, you know, not as, as, as quite as blessed um, with, you know, as much, uh, you know, literature uh, behind our decision-making. Having said that, what I think is frustrating is there is actually a growing body of evidence um, to direct our antibiotic use, and again, I come back to, and I'm I'm just talking very practically, antibiotic use in diarrhea, antibiotic use in urinary tract infections. Um, you know, where actually there there are you know there are some quite good guidelines now that really do make us use less antibiotics for shorter periods of time, but we're still not tapping into that enough, and I really think that we're we're kind of missing um missing a trick there. So Dorisan, obviously we've 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 now actually it's amazing because we've we've not prepared for this conversation, but we're singing from a similar hymn sheet, which is great. So without even prompting, we're we're sort of saying very similar themes. Uh, I'm interested from your perspective, um, what when when you know when you're chatting to Boris or whoever you're talking to, government, um, and telling them about how they should be doing things, um, how much does this kind of veterinary influence or animal influence come into your sphere? Are you aware that we are having similar conversations that we're, we're, you know, how much does that really play into genuinely the job that you're uh, trying to do or the the advice that you're trying to give? Um, There is a, within the Department of Health, they've set up a, a diagnostics program board for AMR. And I know that, uh, there is a similar thing going on for the veterinary side, but the two of uh, the two seem to operate in silos. But I'm sure there's civil servants who are making the link across. But yes, I, I'm working solely with with medics um, and Department of Health people, rather than an NHS people, rather than anyone from outside our immediate sphere. Which, again. It, it is a danger that you get too much silo thinking and then you do spend too much time in inventing the same wheels in different places. Whereas if there was more cross-linkage and the One Health agenda was a, was perhaps more strongly adhered to or the, you know, we had a much better communication between the two sides, there would be a lot we could learn on all sorts of things, not just um, antimicrobial resistance, but this would be a, a great leading thing to be to have a platform to engage on and I'm pretty sure thinking about it we probably have to have a much more scripted conversation but I'm sure that this is the sort of conversation that 
the lay public would find really interesting as well because I you know I'm a I'm a pet owner myself so I'm quite fascinated by the veterinary side a friend of mine's husband has got a veterinary practice in Dorset so uh, I used to have horses I've got a, an equine vet that's a friend so I do oh and, and of course I, I know people at IDEX as well so I do have that sort of a sort of interest in the veterinary side of things as well but it's it doesn't tend to come into play so much professionally. Yeah. And it seems a shame actually when like you say there's there's maybe there's maybe some time and uh, saving here as far as you know the very similar themes really good point from Marta about kind of um sh- they're all the same bugs, you know, that it's all the same thing we're dealing with here. Um just uh, just remind us what pets you have now. I've got two border terriers and uh, right. my younger yeah. one just a year old on Saturday and so of course I went through all that um sort of six months old he got nasty diarrhea that he picked up from hanging around in puddles and things so you know I had that conversation with my vet about what treatment he should have and so yeah and actually he did he he had some fecal testing because I wanted to make sure what it was and yeah so he was treated appropriately and equally I was being very careful with my own hygiene but I didn't want to pick anything up myself from him, much as I love him. We don't share everything. Yes. Yeah. He does sleep, they sleep on the bed. I, I knew, I, that's, I know. That's the thing where I could see us all kind of like wincing when you said that, Martin, and we were like, mm, I'm, sure, I'm sure we've all done that. And actually, it's so funny because it. I don't do that at all. Yes, yeah, that's a lie. No, I know. Um, I know, I know it's a lie. Um, so I think, um, so as, I suppose what we then need to be sort of thinking about is uh, in many ways on a more kind of practical um you know i think dorisan you've spoken about the, the the very serious nature of this problem and actually we we do need to really be thinking about avoiding that but but just bringing it back to kind of um uh from a more sort of day-to-day point of view um marta what are there anything, is there anything more kind of truly practical and, and things that people could change today or tomorrow that would help them better manage uh, their antibiotic use in practice? Yes, I, I think so. I think, again, like we we're talking about, it's, it's behaviour is one of the most difficult things to change. And if we can make it as easy as we can for ourselves, especially when we're facing consults of 10 minutes, Every 10 minutes, there's a new consult. We need to make that decision-making of what to prescribe when as easy as we can that is relevant for our individual setting. Because, you know, if you work at a referral place, for example, Scott, like you do, you're probably going to see different type of bugs than someone who works in first opinion practice. So your primary approach Mm -hmm. might not be the same as for others. Um, The other thing is... um, be wise in your testing and only culture if it's appropriate for it, if it's going to make a difference. Because, for example, one of the common things that we see in the labs being cultured is urines. When there are no clinical signs, we get the clinical description and none of those clinical signs point yeah, yeah, yeah. to an antimicrobial UTI, sorry, to a um, a, a urinary tract infection. So you're testing the urine because you it's got PUPD, for example, or because it's part of your general screen profile. 
but there's no stranguria, there's no hematuria, there's no clinical signs that would make you suspicious. And then you culture something, you almost feel obligated to treat it. Then what do you do? Because you've grown it. Yeah, 100%. And um, again, in human medicine, there's uh, very good guidelines that have been um, designed to help uh, practitioners to do that. And some of them are even designed for their own setting again. So each different uh, uh, national health trust will have their local resistance patterns, the most common organisms that you'll isolate for different presentations to help them guide that. It's very difficult to do in the veterinary uh, context, unless you are in a really big practice that sees a lot of it and cultures everything, because you'll be dealing, uh, dealing with a much smaller pool of things that you do culture, because you tend to culture the things that don't respond. And then that means that those are more likely to be resistant and it's going to skew your resistance percentage of organisms. So when you have your local data available to help you do that facilitation of, of having a, a immediate, it's this presentation, it's most likely going to be this bug, it's going to be this antimicrobial that I'm going to prescribe, you need to be aware how that data was generated. Because if you are generating that data only based on the things that you've cultured because they haven't worked the first time around, it's going to skew massively your resistance and that's going to potentiate the use of higher up in the cascade antimicrobials. And that's going to make it worse in terms of developing antimicrobial, promoting antimicrobial resistance. So, yeah, consider what you culture. You know, do, you, do I need to treat this or not? Um, and then... How am I going to treat it? Make it easier for yourself to have that. This is a respiratory problem. It's got a pneumonia. What's the most likely organism? What's the antimicrobial that makes sense while I'm waiting for the BAL to come back? You know, have that very, um, again, to make it easier. And when you're making those choices, go for the narrowest spectrum possible. And again, there are resources that would be good to share with the audience in the link, like the Protect yeah. um, poster that has suggestions, but allows you to tailor to your own practice environment mm -hmm, as well. Mm -hmm. I think there's so many things there. I think, you know, I think that the take home message is you don't need to keep all this information in your head. There are some really good guidelines that can help you make these decisions you know, consensus statements for respiratory tract infection, the ISCAT guidelines for, um, uh, you know, urinary tract infections. So, so many, so many things that people, you don't, don't have to remember it all. I think that, um, you know, again, it's this idea of not just culturing, do a test if you think the patient has the disease, you know, and I, and, you know, so if there's not signs of a urinary tract infection, then don't don't culture the urine because you just end up in a big pickle because you're yeah exactly and i think that but it's the same for endocrine disease if you don't think your dog has hypothyroidism don't test it for hypothyroidism because what you'll end up with is a result that's just very confusing because the thyroid hormones could be all over the place for all various different reasons including where the sun is where the moon is and where the stars are you know so i think you know 
and then people present you with tests going, oh, what do I do with this? And I was like, well, does the dog have any clinical signs of hypothyroidism? No, then don't do it. <laughs> so, because you just end up confused, I think is the point. So I, I think that's a very, very good point. Um, Doris Ann, I think, I hope you agree with my thyroid comments too. You, you said you had a bad background with thyroid testing. Um, so the other, I wonder, you know, again, it's interesting just, you know, listening to the kind of, you know, the, the, the chat from the veterinary uh, perspective do you think are there any sort of real kind of f uh, from an antimicrobial resistance point of view are there any real sort of pearls of wisdom or, or real kind of standout um bits of advice that that are uh, would be helpful or transferable to to our um our our profession as well i think Marta covered that quite well by saying use as narrow a spectrum of antibiotic as possible. Don't treat everything. Don't look for every, like we've just said, don't look for everything because you might find something that's perfectly normal for that animal. It's the same way as you can find anomalies in every human, but it's normal for you. But once they're found, medicine has to treat it. And that can add even more complications on. Um, so I think that's that's those are key things, but also there's if you do need antibiotics, don't be afraid to use them because we we don't want people and animals dying unnecessarily while we're trying to conserve antibiotics. Um, yeah. But be very sensible about why you do use them. No. Yeah, and I think and and also actually you know the the problem I think from a veterinary point of view is actually also that. Um, the antibiotics we have on our shelf, like very standard amoxicillin clavulonic acid, because that's just what we have. And the question is, do we do we need the clavulonic acid? You know, do, do, do you need all of it? You know, and I think the answer a lot of the time is we you don't need it all, you know, but we're, we're we need to. So we just need to start thinking out the box, outside the box a little bit. So, um, Doris, and then I think as far so, you know, we've we've made some some points and I think my biggest question and I'm I'm genuinely interested from from your perspective on all of this where what what does the future hold then what I suppose it sounds like we're heading potentially still in a very negative direction um what is there an answer to this is there a, do you think there is a solution to this or do you I don't expect you to have all the answers but well if you do that's no. great <laughs> but um, but is there a solution do you think to this I think the solution has got to be to find ways of working that we can serve antibiotics, but we still keep a pipeline so that we stay one step ahead of the bugs. But as we've seen with COVID, viruses and bacteria are fiendishly clever for things that haven't got brains. Um, and, you know, they are, that's why they've been around for millions of years is because they are so successful at, at evolving. Um, one of our one of the weird things that we're seeing in humans at the moment is all sorts of strange infections that haven't my, medical microbiologists haven't seen before popping up, which have resulted out of our isolation. So I don't know if you're seeing a similar thing in the veterinary side, but and um, people b becoming less immune to common thing the things that you would normally have dealt with. So we're expecting a really high uh, incidence of flu this year. And there's a lot of infants presenting already with um, an autumn winter virus, uh, respiratory syncytial virus, which we wouldn't normally see at this time of year. Um, and it causes bronchiolitis. Um, so it's 
it's something you don't want your baby to have and typically they appear really bad just about the time humans want to go to bed um humans parents want to go to bed um so they they go to A&E then and and it's not not normally a, a summer problem as well so it's there's all sorts of odd things going on but paradoxically there was a huge campaign about sepsis and the public were really aware about sepsis and the antibiotic use over the pandemic because everyone's been terrified of bit of becoming septic so they've been treated they've been over treating and infections in case, case people are sepsis a septic when in fact they're not they're just they've just got an infection so golly it's so complex it is so complex because what you know it, it's easy to be wise in aftersight and I guess that is where medicine is different to veterinary medicine is unless it's a really valuable resource or something it's really really sad if an animal dies but it's not quite the same impact as if a child or an a person dies. Sure. Absolutely. I think what's interesting though, I think, is that you talked about sepsis and surviving sepsis, and there's very clear guidelines now that if you get an antibiotic within an hour of being diagnosed with, you know, sepsis, then you're going to probably do much better and survival rates are significantly improved, right? So there's this very strong data set, you know, and I think you're right though, we our ability, so our animals become septic and we are potentially then reaching for a fluoroquinolone um, in those situations as per the sepsis you know, guidelines. But the question always is, as I'm reaching for that fluoroquinolone, is how do I do I know that this animal is definitely set? You know, it's, it's hard to know because actually that decision making, that diagnostic capability. So, yeah, no, it's a, I think it's a real... Yeah, I mean, so many. You're right. It's so complex, actually. That's the thing. And 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 and, we, you know, I'd rather survive sepsis too. On the flip side, you know, it's so difficult. It's so difficult. Um. So, Marta, I don't just just listening to kind of um, you know, some of that. One of the things that was commented on there, which I thought was really valuable, um, or interesting, is this. You know how things are different because of coronavirus. I don't know if you have any thoughts on how coronavirus has affected what we are doing and, and potentially patterns of disease or or what you're seeing how is that different um i think there has been a slight increase in testing um you know at least we're busier than ever <laughs> um i don't know how that correlates with antimicrobial prescription um, i don't have that info yet but it would be something that i'd love to get my teeth into uh, because i think it, it will probably have changed because you want to get that interaction with the owner as limited as possible. And so I think potentially there's been a little bit more grabbing of that um, um, third generation cephalosporin where we see the animal once and send it away and it's covered for three weeks. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, I wonder how much more of that has been prescribed just because of wanting to limit that, that interaction as well. Um, I think one of the things that, because you asked about potential challenges to get on top of this situation, I, I just wanted to pick up on that, is that with, with the veterinary side, we have a, a very big challenge with the information that we have available and even uh, how to um, appropriately test and compare antimicrobial resistance, because 
of the guidelines that we have available do not cover as many of the different possibilities as, as the human guidelines do in terms of even having the appropriate antimicrobial cutoffs to say something is sensitive or something is resistant. Not just that, but there's that um, little bit silliness of if an antimicrobial course crosses the border between Germany and France or France and the UK, it might become sensitive when it was resistance or you know, the United States and, and because they're using different guidelines. So um, that, that, you know, that's, you know, it's, it's an interesting concept because then how much confidence do we have in that sensitive or resistance? And, and that has a big impact on, on how we're prescribing. Um, there's, there's, so there's that challenge in testing. And then there's also the different approaches, like um, Dorisan mentioned, it's, it's a very global issue. There are very different approaches, even in countries close to us, such as the Nordic countries and Sweden and Denmark or France, Germany and the UK. And there, it, it's interesting, or it would be interesting to compare what those approaches have led to in terms of when deciding what to do here, because at the moment we don't have any um, proper restrictions. We only have that there is a responsibility for the veterinary surgeon to prescribe within that cascade. But there are countries where you're not allowed to prescribe uh, third-generation cephalosporins or quinolones without testing, to saying that you can prescribe those. It's not allowed. And there are even countries where you're not allowed, period. So you have to deal with those organisms in a different way. So, for example, there's a lot more use of topical antimicrobials uh, or, sorry, not antimicrobials, antiseptics, baths and things like that to deal with some of the staffs that we see in, in cutaneous samples. So um, we have challenges with the, how to classify these organisms properly. We have challenges with the funding to do research to see what's the impact that these different strategies have on our clinical practice, but also the development and transmission of the anti antimicrobial re resistance and, uh, and how that would be translatable to what we do in the future. So that there's different challenges, I think, to the, to the human medicine from the veterinary side of view in terms of how do we get on top of the issue, even though it's the same issue, the challenges there mm. are a little bit. Different. And it's always interesting. I think that comparison is so interesting and um, and, and well, and there and there are common themes across the board, like you say. But um, equally, I think you're you're right. We're always going to be, um, you know, experiencing our own kind of unique um, set of um, veterinary challenges for sure. Okay, um, so interesting actually. And I mean, like I said, we could go on. Uh, we could go on all day, but we don't have all day. So um, I have a couple of other questions just to 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 round off actually. Um. And and we always so Dorisan, I think um, it would be safe to say I don't want to embarrass you. I don't want to embarrass you. Clearly, you will have inspired a lot of people in your career um, uh, by achieving what you have achieved, which is very Im impressive. Um, I wondered if you would be uh, willing to share with us um, someone who has inspired you. Well, golly, there's so many. Um, <laughs> there's been a huge number of people, and I was very lucky earlier in my career. I was inspired by my professor at university, who is a, a world-renowned um, diabetologist, uh, Vincent Marps, and he he's given professional evidence. But 
On the antimicrobial resistance side, I've been inspired by our national clinical director for AMR, who's a gentleman called uh, Matthew Inada Kim, and he's in general practice at the Royal Hampshire Hospital. But he's um, he's just the most empathetic but driven individual, and he's got this complete vision at the moment about delivering. Uh, diagnostic triage into the community to keep people away from hospitals and get people treated quickly. So he's he's probably my AMR uh, inspiration at the moment. And I love that. I love um, you know the fact that he. I love the fact that you said he's you know em- empathy, but also just driven. And I and I love that you can you 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 can be all of those things. You can be you know extremely ambitious, but still. I don't know. And, and there's so many different types of leaders, isn't there? I was I was listening to a really interesting uh, interview with um, Jacinda Ardern, the uh, prime minister of New Zealand. And, you know, she's a, a you know a very different type of leader. She's you know, she's maybe not your classic. Um, and she was saying, but it, it's not one type of thing. You can you can care, but you can also be ambitious and you can be one. All of those things together, you don't have to just be like you know tunnel vision whatever so I, I love that kind of description I thought that was yeah really good um and and Marta the same question to you um and it doesn't have it doesn't have to be veterinary it can be your dad or whatever but uh, is there anyone that's particularly um inspired you um so yeah all of my many mentors I think I've always drawn inspiration from them mm. and you know I think it's like when you're at the Oscars do you get accepts of a speech type of thing you feel like if you don't mention every one of them <laughs> you know you're gonna... so I'm gonna leave it at that as my mentors but also my students so students really inspire mm. me uh, all sorts undergraduate postgraduate veterinary nurses uh, you know all of my students have inspired me mainly because of that which I think sometimes we lose, and I hope I never lose, but that inherent curiosity and that, again, the being driven to, to know and do better. And, that, you know, sometimes it's easy when you get into your routine to stop um, and forgetting that. So, yeah, my students inspire me as well. I Yeah, and I actually I really, really relate to that. I think, yeah, I just think younger people, because they're still enthusiastic in ways that I am not, but it are young. Honestly, I, 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 you know, even taking it a step back, I'm very inspired by people that I, that I mentor, but actually when I do it, you know, I, I was being involved in the interviews at vet schools. So that like, you know, 17 and 18 year old kids and oh my goodness, do they inspire me? I was like, I could not have been as good as you when I was 17. I was rubbish. These kids are so brilliant and so inspiring. And and I just look at them and think, uh, oh, I can't have been like you. No way. Anyway, um, so um, just to finish off then, uh, Dorisan, I wonder if you can just share with us, um, I suppose what we, you know, a kind of take home message, what would be your kind of <laughs> your kind of um summary to the world about uh, not you know the conversation we have to do but kind of your kind of take homes as far as um uh, this discussion about antimicrobial resistance it's everybody's responsibility um it's not vets it's not doctors it's not the government but we all have a part to play in it and that that's true for nearly everything in society but it's something i think we're lacking but more than anything if if we don't get motivated to do something about this, then we're all going to be equally affected. So it is, you know, it, it is something that it needs to be 
taken seriously, even though, you know, life does seem to have become very serious and we must get some fun element put back into life. Um, but at the same time, reserve some energy to, to do the right things and to, to not expect to get better immediately. Everything doesn't have to be instant just because we can access whatever we want at a click of an Amazon button and it's delivered to your door the next day. Um, but that, and that health is, um, it isn't a right. It's, uh, it's something that we should treasure. Our health should be our, our biggest treasure, whether it's our animal's health or our own health. And so it's something we should put some effort into, not just take for granted. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's really, yeah, really, really, thank you. That's, yeah, brilliant, thank you. Um, and Marta, you have to follow that. <laughs> what would be your two? What would be... <laughs> oh, Sorry, um, what would be your... <laughs> well, I don't know. I think if I if I had to say something in terms of, as a, as a main thing is, it would be treat the patient, not the bug. Yeah. You yeah. know, so it's not just the fact that... Um, again it's all of the things that might contribute to an infection it's uh, it's treating that animal and knowing that we're responsible from it from the start of its life uh, all the way to, you know we have that that we may, we manage to follow our patients from the start of their life right at the end which doesn't happen in human medicine so you you, you can have that follow up and and it allows you to know the full history of the patient. It allows you to create that relationship with the owner. We, you know, we, you have that ability. So treat the patient, not the bug would be my, my takeaway message. Oh, it's a good one. These are very good. Thank you. They honestly brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, both of you. Um, that was, I think for me, just really, we're so grateful to have you both here and, and, and it's such, it's so clear to me the benefit actually having this conversation across uh, One Health wise, you know, we talk about it, but it's really, it, it, the benefit is massive, I can, you can see. Um, so having yeah, the 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 honour of having you both here to, to chat about this stuff has just it's been brilliant. So thank you both very much for taking the time to chat to us today. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you, I've really enjoyed it. Massive thank you to uh, Doris Ann and to Marta for chatting today. What a brilliant discussion um, and so many uh, top tips and, and just important uh, points that have been raised today. Please do head over to our show notes and um, there'll be lots of information in there about some of the kind of useful links that we've spoken about today that maybe will help you um, in day-to-day -day practice. And I just have to say a massive thank you again to IDEX for supporting not just this podcast, but um, our anemia course. Um, they're going to be helping with some other podcasts and, and a lot of our clinical content over uh, the next few weeks. So we're just, it's been such a joy to, to work with them. Um, and so lots of information about them and, and everything else um, that they can support with in the show notes too. As always, I just want to end by saying a massive thank you to you all for listening. We never um, underestimate just the importance and we're so grateful for your ongoing support. So really, as always, just a massive thank you for listening. Please do head over to our social media platforms, uh, give us a like, follow and share. And to learn about everything uh, VTX related, uh, head over to our website, which is www.vtx-cbd.com. And on that note, um, I'll see you next week. <laughs>